Hello, I'm Charles Clausen, your host of the Ampex Podcast, a show where we engage in conversations with entrepreneurs and innovators whose wild ideas and exponential thinking are reshaping the universe where we live, play, and work. I believe these powerful conversations will inspire you to pursue your dreams. Welcome to the Ampex Podcast. I'm the host, Charles Clausen, and we're very excited today to have a special guest, Travis Ludlow, an adventurer, an innovator, an all-around great person. Travis, in 19 short years, has accomplished more than most of us have accomplished in a lifetime. So I think, uh, Travis, let's start out with your um, world record and tell, tell our guest about what you, what you did and some of the key learnings along the way. Well, thank you very much, Charles, and, uh, and great to talk to you. But yeah, I mean, it's a, a really long story. Um, I, I, I've uh, uh, well, done a lot of things in, the, in those 19 years, but really, uh, I think the pinnacle of it all was my around-the-world flight. Um, and back last year in 2021, I broke the world record of the first person to fly solo around the world in a uh, single-engine aircraft. And uh, that was definitely the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. But it was absolutely amazing. It took about four years of, of planning and preparation and uh, against all odds, against coronavirus, against uh, issues with the aircraft, issues with all sorts of things, I managed to pull it off. Um, and well, it was crazy. And I, I still I still can't believe that I that I pulled it off. I look at a map and I think, wow, I, I actually did that. I actually flew around all the way around that. <laughs> oh. Well, awesome. Well, let's let's start back at the beginning. What what events or what happened in your life to actually ignite this seed of, you know, the possibility of flying around the world? Well, I, I've always loved aviation. Um, I don't know. I don't know what caused it. I don't know why. It was, but it's like it was like I was born with a love for aviation. Um, I uh, I remember where we used to live. There was a, a small uh, private. Uh, airfield um, here in the UK uh, and uh, it was right next to our house um, uh, and planes would fly over my house all the time um, when I was maybe four or five years old and I used to watch that plane fly over my house all the time and think wow that's so cool I, I wish that was me um, but I you know I never thought I never thought I could be a pilot I thought you have to be rich and uh, famous and all these other things to, to fly to fly aircraft um, uh, but every night I would be I would read aviation magazines I had a pile of aviation magazines next to my bed and every night I'd read I'd read a magazine and think oh yes this is so cool look at all these planes um uh and uh, actually one day I read a book called uh, Wings Around the World by Polly Vatcher and uh, she's a female pilot um and she flew around the world a couple times back in the early 2000s um and that's really what gave me the idea um uh and I never thought about breaking uh, a world record I never thought about uh, breaking the youngest person world record, but I knew that I wanted to fly around the world. Uh, but still at this point, I didn't believe that I could become a pilot. Um, uh, but, you know, my addiction to aviation kept going, kept going. And, uh, you know, I, I used to do all sorts of activities. And every time a plane fly, flew over, I'd stop what I was doing and look at these planes. Um, and my godmother actually realized how much I love aviation. And uh, when I was 12 years old, well, for my 12th birthday, actually, she bought me a trial gliding flight. And... I just absolutely loved it. Um, I remember we went up, um, the weather was pretty bad, as you know, UK weather, 
it's uh, raining most of the time. So we went up in this glider. It wasn't raining, but the visibility was terrible. Um, and I just absolutely loved it. And we were only in the air for maybe 10 or 15 minutes, but it was enough to, to make me realize that, hang on a minute, I can go for this. I could be a pilot. Um, and I just absolutely loved it. Um, and from there, I just started doing uh, gliding training. Um, I was all, I was every weekend, I was down the, uh, my local gliding club, uh, hopping in aircraft and, uh, and going up for lessons. Um, and it uh, wasn't long, well, it took about two years from, uh, from when I first went up in a glider to eventually on my 14th birthday, quite a windy day, I flew solo in a uh, glider on, on, and that was on my 14th birthday. Um, and I just, uh, I mean, I find that was pretty crazy, um, but, uh, and I was absolutely terrified. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure how you'd react to I me mean, letting, letting your grandkids going up in a, in a light egg, in a, in a glider. That must have been quite, must be quite scary. And so you can realize what my grandparents and my parents are thinking when they, when they were there, thinking when I was going up. Um, but after that, I just thought, you know, wow, I need to I actually uh, uh, want to do something with a youngest world record. Um, and I remember thinking, hold on a minute, I want to fly around the world. What if I um, break the world record of the youngest uh, pilot to fly solo around the world? Um, and it's actually around this time I read a uh, magazine article, still reading these magazines next to my bed all, every night. I read this magazine article about um, uh, a person called Lachlan Smart, and he's an Australian, uh, flew around the world back uh, uh, in the, around the same time I flew, around, I flew solo in a glider. And that inspired me. And I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to be him. I want to beat uh, that record. Um, and that's uh, and that's all how it all came about. Um, from then on, uh, the rest is history. I, I began to uh, yeah, plan and prepare. And, uh, and I did it eventually. <laughs> awesome. Outstanding. I want to take a, just one step back. So when you finally had your solo glider flight in the tow vehicle, let go of the cord. Yep. What did you feel on that moment when you were free and you were just soaring in the air uh, currents? How, how did that feel? I, I, it was amazing. I mean, it was, it was freedom, um, relief, I, I think. I mean, I was, I was so used to having uh, a bossy instructor in the back and now here I was up here and I could, had all the controls myself. And obviously I was, I was well-trained and I was sensible, um, but I had all the control to myself and I was just having, having fun up there. Um, obviously I'm concentrating still I'm, I'm working out how to how to land the plane uh, you know because it's a glider there's no way once you're let go of the towing uh, once you let go of the, the towing aircraft you're you're coming down you're not you're not going back up uh, and so I was uh, uh, you know working out the the landing and I managed to land, do a pretty good landing but obviously before I took off I was I was terrified I was really nervous I <laughs> thinking oh I'm going up in the aircraft by myself um i'm not sure how i'm gonna do it i'm not sure i'm gonna be handle it there's no one in the back behind me but yeah once once he released that tow rope i was i mean it was euphoric it was amazing <laughs> so how many hours of training did you have before you actually got to go just, solo in a glider it was just over 20 hours um of, of training in a glider um yeah and I, and I did that over over the course of two years so um because you can't really go up in the air for that long in especially in the uk where the weather isn't the best um you can't you know the average flight time was 20 minutes so um and, and that was maybe a couple flights a day wow so that's not not a lot of air time so no, i can no. understand why yeah at 14 you were a little apprehensive and what's going to happen when you're on your own absolutely and and uh when i eventually flew, flew solo in a powered aircraft um 
uh, back when I, I, was, I was around 16 years old, uh, I was a lot less nervous. I mean, that might have been because I'd already flown solo in a glider. Uh, you know, I already knew what it was like to be pilot in command, but uh, you had a lot more pressure taken off you because you've got a, an engine. So if something goes wrong while you're coming into land or yeah, anything goes wrong, you just go full throttle and climb away or you can you can stay in the air for uh, two hours instead of 15 minutes. So it was it was definitely less scary um, doing my first solo in a, in a powered aircraft. So the, the first glider flight, solo glider flight, how long were you in the air? Did you make it 20 minutes? Uh, no, I was in I was in there for a lot less because the because they can't let you fly for too long um, uh, and you can't actually leave the airspace of the airport. You can you got you have to stay within within the uh, you know, the airport's vicinity within five miles of the airport. So they didn't take me that high. They took me enough, uh, high enough that I, once they let go of the cable, I just glided down, um, uh, downwind of the runway, turned and uh, landed back on the runway. So maybe I was in the air for eight or nine minutes, uh, but that was it. But I mean, it felt, it felt, I think it felt a lot longer than that just because, uh, you know, I was just, I was having such a good time. <laughs> so then you, you stepped up to powered aircraft and how did that, training journey go well um because i'd already been taught a lot well, well what's good about gliding is that you get a lot of the basic stick and rudder skills because the wings are so long on gliders that you if you move the the uh yoke the, sorry the, the stick a little bit the the plane you know is quite clunky and the the tail likes to stick out from the big ailerons um so you have to use a lot of a lot of you know, physical movements to, uh, you know, physical body movements to control the aircraft. Whereas moving onto a powered aircraft, it's a lot more sensitive. Um, and so I guess I was so used to making all these big movements that flying a light aircraft, it was, it was a lot easier because you just, you go like, you go slide a bit to the right and the plane will roll to the right nice and quick. Whereas you have to go a lot to the right in a glider in order for it to roll around the same speed. Um, so yeah, it was, I, I was pretty much straight into it. I mean, I, I remember I, I landed it on my second flight or something like that. And, uh, yeah, I was, I was, my instructor said I was, uh, uh, not, I wouldn't say a natural, but they said, I, they said I was uh, a great pilot straight away. So yeah, I, it helped out a lot. Um, and it was a lot more training to go first solo. I think I did maybe 30 hours or something. Um, maybe actually, I'm not sure maybe it was less than that. I can't, I can't, I can't remember, but it was a lot. It was a lot more training required in order to go up for first solo, and you had to write a uh, an air law exam as well before you before you go solo. But uh, uh, it was it was definitely more rewarding. I found to go solo in in uh, the powered aircraft. So you were sixteen when you did your solo in a powered plane. Yes, um, and my goal was actually to fly fly solo on my 16th birthday um but unfortunately it was uh, the weather was it was terrible um on my 16th birthday uh so i had to go the day after my the day after my 16th birthday um but uh you know i still i still got it done nice and close to my birthday uh just a shame because my grandparents drove all the way down from a uh, town called ipswich in the uk about about an hour and a half drive um to from where i was flying out of and they uh, uh had to head back for the night and come back again the next day but uh, yeah, it was it was great to pull it off and had a, had a lot of fun, and it taught me a lot about the weather as well. Before I because uh, the instructor made me you know, do a briefing with him and and talk about well all the risks and why should go up and do you think should go up and you know I I, uh, I made the right decision not to go up and yeah it was it was a good lesson. So I guess learning powered aviation in the UK is a good place because Mother Nature is always throwing 
something adverse at you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, and and yeah, the the weather changes drastically. I mean, it's it's 100 degrees Fahrenheit here today, and then next week it's dropping down to 60 degrees Fahrenheit. So it it drops, it goes up and down in the rain some days, completely dry the next. So yeah, it's 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 strange, but it taught teaches you me a lot because yeah, you know, uh, on my around the world flights, um, I hadn't the there was no weather which I'd never encountered before. So it was uh, it was all very familiar um, and. Uh, uh, but what's also quite good about the UK is that it's such a small, you know, it's, it's a tiny island, um, you know, compared to, compared to the United States, it's, it's a tiny island. Um, and there I am. Uh, and, and, and there's so many, so many aircraft, you know, coming into, coming into London. I mean, London has how many airports? You've got London Heathrow, Gatwick, uh, Luton, uh, Stansted. I mean, that's just, so there's, I think there's four or five airports, um, uh, uh, going into London, um. So there's a lot of traffic. Um, so there's a lot of traffic and the airspace is really tight. Um, and so uh, that's that's really, that's one of the hardest parts of the UK is the airspace. And so fly, if you can fly here, if you can navigate here, you can navigate anywhere in the world. And and that's what that's what made it possible really for me is that I found it a lot easier. And I was speaking to a lot of pilots who, who you know, youngest people who had flown around the world um, and their stories have come from the UK airspace and they were like, what is going on how, how do i do this <laughs> so it was uh you know i uh watching their videos and, and hearing their stories and thinking oh yes yeah i know that <laughs> so the, the first step was to get your basic pilot's license so before you could fly around the world solo what other licensing certifications did you have to pick up to be able to yes, navigate so, around so, the world so after i got my uh like for my private pilot's license i actually i picked up my you have to be 17 to hold a private pilot's license uh, and that's the same here as in as pretty much everywhere else in the world um and i uh, uh i picked up my private pilot's license on my 17th birthday because I, I completed all my training before that and all my tests um so i went down to the civil aviation authorities offices um on my 17th birthday i picked up my license and the next day i had a flight booked out to uh, uh phoenix arizona um to uh, 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 complete my, uh, well, to, to begin the training for my instrument rating. And uh, I'm not sure if, if, if you don't know what an uh, instrument rating is, it essentially allows you to fly and navigate inside, uh, well, without reference to the ground and essentially flying in clouds and, and bad weather, basically. So you're flying with reference to your instruments, navigating with reference to your instruments, and, uh, and that's vital for uh, an around the world flight because you're flying in places where you know, the weather can just change like it does in the UK. And the only, uh, the bit that's a bit more difficult is that in the UK, if you don't have an instrument rating and the weather suddenly turns ter suddenly turns bad, you just land at any airfield because they're dotted everywhere around the country. Whereas flying in Siberia, the weather suddenly turns turns bad. Uh, <laughs> you're not landing the plane for another five or six hours. So uh, <laughs> it was absolutely vital to get that, to get that rating. Um, and I did that with Aragon in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, and Phoenix, Arizona, I mean, it's not the best place to get that rating to your know, instrument rating flying in bad weather because it's sunshine for like 364 days of the year over there or something. So it was, uh, uh, yeah, not, not the best place to go, but uh, well, for, for actual uh, practice, but it was, it was good to get that rating and uh, yeah, it was vital. Um, as well as that, I also uh, um, did some survival training um, and ditching training. So uh, what to do, how to land an aircraft in the water um, is, is what I also did a lot of training on. Um, uh, the problem was uh, I was actually supposed to do some uh, 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 escape training. So, you know, uh, 
how to escape out of the aircraft once I've landed in the sea. But unfortunately, this was around the coronavirus time. I wasn't able to, yeah, you know, it was all during lockdown. I wasn't able to go to the to the pool and actually practice these things. So um, I missed out on that. But luckily, I didn't have an engine failure of the water, didn't have to ditch. So that was quite lucky. Um, uh, but I was also uh, due to um, uh, do some uh, mountain training, so mountain flying training, because on my run off flight, I flew in a lot of mountainous areas, uh, the Ural Mountains, the Rocky Mountains, the Pyrenees, just to name a few. So this was important because there's a lots of extra risks that, you know, in, uh, encountered around, around high terrain, around mountains. Uh, but unfortunately, again, coronavirus just caused too many issues and, and it caused things to get in the way of this training and I had to put it on the back foot. But that uh, caused a lot of issues. Well, not a lot of issues, but caused quite a big issue uh, uh, later on in the journey. Um, I'm not sure we'll, we'll, get, we'll get back to that in a bit, but uh, it was it was definitely uh, uh, something which I wish I could have done. Um, but other than that, that, that's all the training I had. Um, I had a night rating as well, so it allowed me to fly at night. But uh, and that's that's all the training I had. So does the instrument rating um, does that include radar, or just using uh, uh, the the elevation and longitude, latitude, and those basic? Yeah. So uh, it's a lot of it is that. I mean. Uh, radar uh, is it would be part of if you're fl uh, flying an aircraft with a radar, they'd train you on it. But I, I didn't have a radar on my aircraft. Um, but it is yeah, a lot of navigators with longitude and latitude, um, especially over rural areas like Siberia, like the North Atlantic, uh, where there's no there's no points you can reference yourself off. You have to you know, read what you have to tell air traffic control the coordinates where you think you are. And read them out to them and navigate via coordinates so um it, that was definitely a challenge because i'd never actually done that before the, the first time i'd ever done that was uh on the around the whole flight so uh, and on the actual legs themselves um but it was uh, so that was a quite a good uh, learning experience but i you know i did i did that all correct because air traffic control didn't get mad at me <laughs> so when you're flying around the world how much time do you spend over open water well, I, I tried to spend as little as possible. Um, the, the conventional route to, to fly around the world, uh, well, back in, so back in 2018, uh, uh, Russia opened up their borders um, to allow general aviation to fly through their country, to fly into their country, well, from, from, foreign, uh, from uh, you know, foreign airports. Um, and uh, before that, all, all pilots who were flying around the world had to cross the Pacific via uh, you know, somewhere in Asia, then to... Uh, Hawaii and then onto the, uh, the mainland US um, and uh, uh, those are in, in the aircraft I was flying those would have been 18 19 hour legs two two 18 or 19 hour legs over nothing but water like thousands of miles away from land you know if it was one engine if that engine fails you're you, you've got hours until rescue um, and that is just not a risk I could have taken um, and I was speaking to my dad uh, uh, part of the reason which was convincing my dad to let me do this trip and convincing my mom and my dad to do this trip was uh, that I'm not going to be flying long legs over water and spending as little time as possible. And my dad said, if you, if you have to fly those two legs over uh, the Pacific, then you're not flying around the world. And, uh, and I said, deal, I'll, 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 I won't be doing that and I'll find a way out. And luckily, as I said, in 2018, Russia allowed, allowed aircraft to fly into their uh, country. And so I actually managed to cross the um, uh, Pacific uh, up north via the Bering Strait, so uh, a place called Anadir in Russia, and then over to Nome, Alaska. And that was only, how, how long was that? That was about two hours over water. Um, and there were islands in between as well, if, if there was an issue as well. 
Um, and sure, the water's cold. I was flying over icebergs, but uh, uh, it's uh, a, a lot better than two 19-hour legs over uh, tropical stormy water. <laughs> so, so, um, so just uh, out of curiosity, when yeah. you're flying over Russia, Russian airspace, and you're talking to air traffic control, I'm assuming you're talking in English. Do, do all of these countries have English-speaking people that you can understand? It's supposed support your so uh, the International uh, uh, Civil Aviation Organization they, they are, uh, uh, is essentially states the rules are the international language of aviation is English, and that's how it should be. Um, uh, I mean, for domestic aircraft, for domestic airports, um, I don't think it actually has to be English, but for international airports, um, uh, you have to have a, you have to have English uh, air traffic control. Um, and for ninety-nine percent of the countries I went to, that was that was the case. Um, all except for Russia, <laughs> because it's such a big, vast country, and you have all these international airports, but you don't get any, you don't get any uh, uh, international flights. Well, the only time you get international flights are Russian uh, aircraft flying uh, into those airports. So the pilots already speak Russian, and so instead of paying extra money for uh, uh, getting an English-speaking controller, they just uh, hire hire Russian controllers, and um, the the person who was actually helping me out with my uh, legs through Russia, he knew this, um, but there's only so much you could do to to uh, try get uh, English speaking controllers on. So a lot a lot of the time, I was actually doing uh, flights into Russia, uh, and I would I would have to uh, uh, call uh, someone on the satellite phone to translate what the air traffic controllers were saying uh, while I was in flight. Um, you know, a few times I was I had to think. Okay, does that mean clear to land? Does that mean there's an aircraft coming in? Um, and so I just I was basically clearing myself to land at these international airports, and I was hoping that no police show up, no people with guns, and luckily that never happened. So I uh, I got quite lucky. Um, but uh, there was that was definitely a challenge. Is that you know again if if something goes wrong, you need to ask for help from air traffic control. They don't just they don't have a clue what you're saying, and so yeah, how how are they going to know to send search and rescue out to you? Um, so it was it was scary um and a challenge but it made it quite quite uh, interesting <laughs> absolutely having a international special phone that yeah. you could contact someone to translate what you're hearing from air traffic control yeah you know that's that's kind of dicey so when you um when i think about this your parents gave you some constraints about flying over open water yes tell us about the planning that went into figuring out the route that your little Cessna could make it to the next uh, international airport and yeah. all the logistics. How did that happen? Well, um, uh, so as I said, it, it took about four years of, of planning and preparation and the route was changing constantly. Um, even, even up to the day of my, you know, even, even during my round the world flight, my route was changing. You know, I was, I would just decide to land somewhere else or I was forced to land somewhere else. Um, but, uh, the, the, the planning for the route, I mean, Include things like uh, uh, ease of hotels, ease of food to get to, uh, uh, the quality of the airports, uh, the quality of the, the place I was going, how nice it was, uh, uh, um, uh, if the airport will be open, landing fees, fuel fees, um, all these sorts of things. Uh, uh, and uh, I mean, the big challenge was uh, the range of the aircraft. So I did have quite... A, well, very quite a long range for what the aircraft was. So I flew around the world in a Cessna 172, 
um, a 2001 built Cessna 172, and uh, a normal Cessna 172 has uh, a um, Avgas engine, which is essentially petrol, um, and it has a, an endurance of about five hours, so it can fly for about just over six, uh, just over 500 miles, let's call it. But you, you're you're basically running on fumes by the time you reach that point. Um, and uh, uh, I, one of the criteria I needed was uh, a thousand mile range. Um, and what I worked out was that uh, you could actually get engines um, that go inside these aircraft uh, that uh, only burn the half the amount of fuel that uh, uh, the conventional Avgas engines do. And they actually run on jet fuel. And there's two benefits of this. So the first benefit is that you get uh, it only burns about uh, four gallons an hour, four US gallons an hour compared to eight US gallons an hour for the convention, conventional engine. But as well as that uh, jet fuel, you can get absolutely anywhere in the world. Um, you know, everywhere has jet fuel because you have jets operating everywhere. You have airline and airlines flying into every airport everywhere. Whereas you don't get uh, light piston aircraft flying into everywhere, which is what it typically runs on. Um, which meant that I didn't actually really have to worry about the logistics of fuel because I knew 99% of the place I was going, there'd be fuel. Um, uh, as well as that, it, it had also been tested on running on diesel and it runs fine on diesel because jet fuel is basically the same as diesel with some additives to it. Um, and so, it, uh, and there was one, one time in my flight, I actually landed at a, uh, a small airport in Russia called, uh, uh, well, what was it called? Puskov, I think it, no, it was a Puskov. I, I can't, I can't actually, oh, Cheetah, Cheetah in Russia, that was the name of the place. Um, and uh, they pulled up in a truck with a, a, a big uh, uh, vat of uh, uh, car diesel, uh, a big uh, big drum of car diesel and uh, poured it into the plane and the plane ran fine for that whole, for that whole flight. Um, and so really didn't have to worry about uh, fuel and uh, fuel planning, uh, so, well, uh, um, logistics planning for fuel. Um, and, uh, uh, the only place I really had to worry about was was Russia because they had they have a lot of documentations and things like that. Uh, you know, it's uh, whoever's the biggest whoever's the biggest epaulets on gets the all the uh, gets to ask all the documentation and things like that. So uh, that's that's how it works in Russia. Um, but uh, uh, apart from that, uh, food I brought emergency food with me, so I brought um, pot noodles. I like instant noodles, British pit, um, instant noodles. Um, uh, and I bought Jaffa cakes, which is like uh, British uh, uh, chocolate. Uh, it's, it's, it's like a mini cake, bit of chocolate on it with a uh, orange sort of uh, uh, inside. Um, and they're well, they're absolutely delicious. But they're they're a British staple, and I, and I love them. Unfortunately, I, I gave uh, most of mine to some uh, Russian uh, school children who came to visit me when I landed at an airport in Russia. So I lost my stash of of, uh, <laughs> of those, um, and I also had some twiglets as well, which is another British uh, snack, uh, marmite breadsticks, basically. Um, and so those are those. I love those as well. Um, and I managed to get all the way through my reserves um, during my around the world flight, and it caused some problems because uh, a few times where I landed and I had to make unplanned stops because uh, most of my planning was to places where I knew there'd be food and I knew there'd be a place to stay. But there are a few times where I had to start stay at places where uh you know, I had to divert to some strange places uh for example and i'm like uh, a lot of this is russia and i'm again this happened in russia uh, i was flying from uh uh magadan which is on uh the far west coast of russia um uh to uh anadir and this was supposed to be my last day in russia and i was doing a planned fuel stop in a tiny settlement called uh, manili in russia um now no roads connecting to this place 
the runway is actually a helicopter helicopter runway to just give this hel Soviet helicopter space to take off. And that's the only way to get uh, in and out of this place is by the Soviet helicopter. Um, and uh, Soviet helicopter runs in jet fuel, which is perfect to what I needed. So that's a planned stop. And I, I land there, um, uh, fill up with fuel and I take off again. But the weather had actually decreased quite a lot as I was coming in because the weather uh, tools that you have for this, for the middle of Siberia, for this side of Russia, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty terrible. There's, there's not a lot of things that you can actually rely on for, for weather. And so um, it was essentially me showing up blind, just not really knowing what the weather was like. Like, and I, as I show up, it's raining, the visibility is terrible, but I think, okay, what, it, it, I, I, I'll probably get out of it because it looks like it's clearing up. And as I, as I take off after filling up out of Melilly, uh, I see uh, just the base of this huge mountain and, uh, and nothing else because the top of it is just obscured by clouds. And my flight path is taking me directly towards that. And I think, nope, I'm not doing that. I'm turning around and landing back. Uh, and, uh, and so I landed back. And this was supposed to be my last day in Russia. I was supposed to be leaving Russia on this day. So I only had about 300 rubles, which is, what is that? I mean, that's like $3 or something like that, maybe, maybe even less than that. Um, and I had about $1,500 in my bag. Um, uh, and so I landed there and I, they were like, uh, had to, again, I had to call the, my translator on the, on the satellite phone. Um, and uh, they, 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 he said, they were asking why you're here. And I said, Oh, the weather's bad. <laughs> and they said, Oh, okay. Um, well, uh, where where do you want to stay? And I said, and I said, basically, you tell me. <laughs> and uh, uh, they managed, luckily, because I only had 300 rubles, um, which they which I told them, and they're like, Oh, oh, this is not good. This is not good. <laughs> uh, they might luckily someone had a hostel which they built there. Um, built built this hostel himself. Um, and I uh, uh, I remember I, I managed to get spend the night there. He took about hundred dollars for me to spend the night there, um, uh, and I, I don't know why he need, what he'd ever use those dollars for, why he'd ever need them, but he took the dollars, um, and uh, I managed for that three hundred rubles to buy uh, a loaf of bread at the uh, at the local shop, and so that was my dinner for that night was was this loaf of bread, um, uh, and so uh, there was uh, I was actually <laughs> the blankets were all Dora the Explorer blankets which was kind of strange for the middle of Siberia. <laughs> Um, so I was sleeping with a Dora the Explorer blanket uh, with a loaf of bread that I had for my dinner and uh, took off the next day. And that was that was the challenge. Uh, some of the challenges I uh, faced um, and I you know, obviously lost a lot of weight on my runoff flight because I, I couldn't eat. I couldn't eat properly just because there was no there was no there was not a lot of opportunities uh, to eat properly. But uh, other than that, the planning and logistics went well. Um, and the only thing I messed up on as well for my planning and logistics was uh, uh, a lot of states uh, in the US, and I, I didn't realize this, or a lot of hotels, that uh, is that you have to be 21 to stay in a hotel. I didn't realize that. Uh, whereas everywhere else, uh, well, most other places in the world I've ever been to, you could be 18. Um, so there I was, I showed up at uh, some of these hotels. Um, the first time it happened to me, I'd actually flown all the way up from, uh, I'd flown from uh, what, Seattle down to uh, LA, spent the night in LA, then uh, flew from LA to Las Vegas. I was going to spend a couple of days in Las Vegas and I get to the hotel and I give him my passport and he, and he looks at my passport. He goes, you got to be, you'll be 21 to stay here. Um, and I said, I said, well, I, I didn't know that. And I just flown all the way from, from all the way halfway around the world. And he's like, oh, sorry, you can't stay here. So I, uh, uh, and that caused me quite a few times uh, issues staying in hotels. And that was, I guess that was my bad for not uh, realizing that uh, that was the case. Uh, but 
you know, other than that, uh, the, everything everything went smoothly. The planning preparation went well, and uh, yeah, it was it was a good trip. <laughs> so, w- when you were going through this planning phase, did you have some mentors that were um, experienced aviators and had traveled yeah. uh, long distances to kind of guide you and uh, teach you about what you might expect and how did how did that learning process go? Yeah, and that's as soon as I decided I was going to do this, I started contacting people who, ferry pilots, people who'd flown around the world, um, some of the youngest people who'd flown around the world, uh, I managed to contact as well. And that was probably the the best thing I could have ever done is the amount of experience they gave me. Um, so, I mean, for example, I mean, it was it was little things that they they gave me and that, that was quite important, such as uh, wearing epaulets. Um, so I was, I, I never even thought of this, but that they said, um, imagine you're you're trying to get you, you arrive at this international airport and you're just dressed in you don't know you know uh, civvies you know so like just normal civilian clothes um, and you're trying to get airside and try at this international airport trying to get trying to pass through uh, uh, and you know trying to get onto the apron and people are going to think yeah why is there a kid trying to get onto the apron and they're going to think that's not right whereas if you wear if you wear epaulets and they think okay this guy must be a pilot this guy must be uh you know try, must be flying a plane and so they're they're a lot more uh you know uh, accommodating um and so that's that's just some of the tips that i hadn't even thought of and obviously there's uh, tips with the weather fuel planning um uh and yes you know, so the the person one of the biggest helps i had for me was uh uh, someone called Mason Andrews, and he was actually he, the person who was holding the record. He he actually, well, sorry, he's uh, the person whose record I beat, um, uh, and he was absolutely amazing. He was so so helpful, and I actually met him on the Ronald flight uh, in Louisiana. Uh, but he uh, he was absolutely amazing, um, giving me so much tips, so many so much advice, um, and uh, it was it was just great uh, uh, to have so many people who had the experience and. Uh, who didn't even a lot of people didn't believe I could do it um and rightly so I mean I there was coronavirus and they were still giving me all this advice um and help for free so I was it was a privilege and really I mean it, it saved my bacon quite a few times well did you ever think about giving up because of all the challenges that the pandemic was throwing in front of you or did you just keep going on a singular focus that I'm going to make this happen yeah well th- there were a couple times where where I thought this this around our flight's not going to happen so the first time i remember i was coming back from school and i remember hit listening on the radio uh it said breaking news uh the who um has just announced that coronavirus is now a global pandemic and i thought oh no there's there's a trip over that it's, it's not going to happen now it's, it's not going to be possible and i remember I was, I was really down for for two weeks um and i was thinking oh this is just this is the worst thing that could have happened this is it's not going to work out now um, but I remember, I remember thinking, so uh, my original plan was to fly around the world in 2020 and beat the world records at 17 years old. And before that, Mason Andrews record um, was 18 years and 163 days old. Um, and, uh, and I was planning to fly around the world at 17 years and 17 and a half years old, basically. Um, and so I was going to actually smash the record. I was going to you know, absolutely uh, uh, beat it by ju- uh, just under a year. Um, uh, and I realized that, uh, hang on a minute, if coronavirus clears up um, uh, before uh, Mason Andrews, before the age of Mason Andrews, well, you know, a, f- a few months before uh, the, year, the, the age of Mason Andrews was for me, I could still pull it off. Um, so I won't be flying around the world at 17, I'll be flying around the world at 18, um, but I could still do it. Um, 
and in the end that's exactly what I did I, I took off uh, uh, six weeks before uh, uh, sorry well, I took off no, two months actually before um, uh, the, the dates the, the cutoff date for Mason Andrews records and I landed back uh, two weeks before uh, uh, well two weeks to spare 13 days to spare so I beat the record by 13 days um, but that wasn't the only time I mean that was a time so I had actually uh, bought an aircraft to fly around the world in uh, a Piper PA-28 which also had the diesel engine it was really nice um, but I had some some issues uh, I should call it um, uh, with the with the company that was uh, putting the avionics in it's a really long story um, uh, and it's not something I should probably say on here but uh, my, uh, I remember thinking oh these guys are going to stop the whole around the world flight and uh, it's all going to be because of this and this was this was uh, two months before the around the world flight was actually set to kick off uh, and uh, I thought oh, yeah these guys are going to stop I don't have an aircraft the aircraft's not airworthy um, and so I, I, set, I basically sent out a bunch of emails pleading for uh, uh, someone who could help me um, and uh, luckily, I managed to find uh, uh, the, head, the head of AOPA France, his name's Emmanuel Davidson. He actually managed to um, find an aircraft that I could fly around the world in. Um, it was a Dutch aircraft, and the owner was uh, uh, absolutely amazing. He was kind enough and also crazy enough to trust me to fly his Cessna 172 around the world, and uh, and that's exactly how it happened. Um, and I only got the aircraft uh, 10 days before I took off the around the world flight. So only had 10 days of uh, experience and practice flying that aircraft before I left for the for the trip, um, which was not long enough at all, and uh, was quite silly to do that. But uh, and it did cause issues, but I, I pulled it off in the end. So Travis, you said he was crazy enough to let you do it. Did he let you borrow his plane, or did he sell uh, it to you, or how did that work? I, I rented it off him. So we he, he did it. We, I did a deal with him uh, to to rent it off him um, uh, to fly around the world, um, and so I paid for three months of. Uh, of rental for that aircraft and uh, and that's how i did it uh, uh but i mean obviously it's uh, uh renting an aircraft to fly around europe is different to renting an aircraft to flying around the world so uh yeah he wasn't doing it you know he he wasn't doing it for the money he was doing it to help me out and he was doing it uh uh, uh because he he wanted you know, he he trusted me to to take his aircraft around the world well that's that's an, a beautiful thing and i think a lesson for everybody that if, if you're willing to ask and reach out, the kindness, kindness of strangers can change your destiny and your life in, in many different ways. But you just have to open up and ask and see what the universe sends back. So that's pretty cool. Exactly. And, and I, I, I'm a, I mean, that's, that's essentially how I made the Randall flight possible. Uh, is that, yeah, I just asked. I, I would I would spend nights every day uh, after school. I'd come back from school with with help from my dad. We'd write emails uh, out to marketing directors and, and CEOs and and uh, people who, who wanted to donate. And uh, I just wrote, wrote wrote all these letters out, hundreds and hundreds. Even even like uh, even the night before I took off the run off flight, I was writing these. Um, and ninety nine percent of them just flicked it off and said, "Oh no," or didn't even respond to the email. And that one percent, that the kind one percent, the people who actually trusted me and believed believed in me, uh, were were uh, who were the people that made it possible. And uh, and I'm forever thankful. I mean, they they changed my life uh, uh, forever, and they they're just uh, absolutely amazing people. And that's I think, you know, if you're ever in the position to help someone out, um, I think you should always go for it. Just you you never know, you know, what what you're doing and uh, uh, what position you put them in, and 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 how how much it will mean to them. So. That's, uh, it was absolutely amazing, uh, the help I got and I'm forever grateful. Well, that's another great lesson 
the um, persistence to continue when things look the darkest and, and keep showing up and keep asking and eventually, you know, it all came together. So yeah. how did you go about finding sponsors to help fund this around the world adventure? So there's some interesting stories, actually, how, how I did this. Uh, and, uh, yeah, as a lot of it was was uh, just reaching out to people who see you want to come on board. Um, and uh, yeah, I reach out to so many companies and uh, uh, the people who see my social media and reached out to me, uh, uh, people who, who reached out to uh, uh, my dad, actually managed to contact my dad, uh, uh, people who just uh, knew who I was and my name along. Um, and uh, and obviously me writing emails. Um, and uh, and that's essentially how I did it, which is asking for donations, asking people to sponsor me, and I uh, yeah, I raised quite a lot uh, in sponsorship to make this possible, um, and uh, and that's how I did it. And it's actually, one of the most one of the strangest uh, uh, ways I actually made, managed to raise sponsorship was I was um, on a uh, a forum talking as I was because I was thinking about okay, what sort of equipment do I need for crossing the Atlantic, what sort of things, and I was I was speaking to someone, um, and his name was. Uh, I won't say the company, but it was. It said the name of the company CEO uh, on or was his tag on uh, on uh, this on this aviation forum, and I thought, oh, that's that's cool. I wonder if he's a CEO. Um, and it turned, and I and I, you know, I was privately messaging him, and it and it turned out he was a CEO of this of this big company, and uh, uh, and I and it, and, the, and I told him what I was doing, and he was like wow, you know, you should contact my marketing team and all these sort of things. And uh, in the end, I contacted the marketing team and they said, yes, we, let's let's sponsor you. Let's, let's raise all this money. So uh, I essentially uh, was taught just ch chatting to some guy on the internet and he was CEO of this big company and he uh, actually sponsored me uh, on the round of flights. It turned out he was a pilot as well. He'd been doing a lot of uh, cross-channel flights and he knew a lot about this equipment he needed. And uh, and he sponsored uh, company sponsored me for uh, my uh, flight and so that was another amazing thing which i'm <laughs> to me forever grateful for and the, the kindness of him um and i guess he was inspired for what i was doing um and i guess it's just it shows that things just sometimes fall it fall into your lap and uh, and make it possible so and that's what i think a lot of a lot of around the whole flight was is just was insane luck um uh, that's uh that's really uh, what made it possible was, was luck as well um and uh, and that's uh, that was one of the things was just the, the luck of that. <laughs> well, having a clear intention, and it sounds like the social media and the aviation forums were allowed you to really explain, expand your reach and touch a lot of people and get them engaged in your journey. Yeah. So um, you've gone through the prep work, you've got the plan in place. Um, before we start, if, if I recall correctly from the, the TED talk, you um, flew the slowest plane that's ever flown around the world and you beat the record by 13, 15 days or something like that. So um, how does that all work? So uh, I was, again, as I said, I was very, very lucky. Um, uh, most of the delays are, are from around the flights are, are weather and, and politics and, and things like that. Um, and for me, there was, there was, there was a gap um, it was COVID was wearing off and this was before, uh, it was just after COVID was wearing off and this was just before the whole Russia-Ukraine situation. Um, and so there was no, essentially there was no really uh, political issues. I had uh, uh, only had one sort of political issue, which was um, uh, to do with Canada 
um, they were quite still quite tight with their lockdown and I was forced to actually divert due, due to some weather um, uh, into uh, an airport in Canada, which was supposed to be a domestic flight flying from Alaska to uh, Seattle. Um, but the weather was quite bad, so I was forced to divert into Canada and they uh, I was actually quite delayed quite a bit because I uh, they had to politely reject me entry into the country um, and uh, and I had to continue on my way to Seattle. Um, uh, I mean, in the, that, didn't, that didn't cost me a day, it just cost me a few hours. Um, but that was the only political real, really issue I had. And in the end, I only was delayed by two hours, not two hours, sorry, uh, by two days on the whole round world flight due to weather, um, uh, which was uh, re really, really lucky. Um, I, I pushed it hard though. I mean, I, I, I did, uh, I originally planned to fly four and a half hours a day. Um, and after, after doing a few four and a half, a couple four and a half hour days, I was thinking, this is this is too easy. I mean, this is, I, I I wake up early in the morning and I land uh, uh, mid afternoon and I've got the whole rest of the day doing nothing. So I thought, you know, I, I bumped this up and in the end I was doing uh, eight hour days and I and that was fine. And I mean, it was it was tiring, of course, but that, that's what that's what made me do it the fastest. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, I mean, originally I didn't think I'd do. It. I thought I did it joint the fastest. So uh, uh, Matt Guthmiller, he uh, was another world rec youngest world record pilot, and his he used to be the fastest. He did it in forty four days, and uh, I thought it did it in forty four days until I realised that. Hang on a minute, I crossed the international date line and went back in time a day, so I actually did it in forty three days. Um, and so uh, uh, that's that's how I realised I did it the fastest, and so I only beat it by a day, the fastest record of the youngest pilots. Um, and yeah, I was just so lucky. I had no issues with the aircraft, no issues getting fuel, no issues uh, with weather, no issues with politics. And that's how I did it the fastest uh, in, the, in the slowest aircraft. You, you mentioned that there was times when you were going eight hours that you got tired. Uh, was there ever points where you felt like you just couldn't keep your eyes open? And how did you work through that? Yes. Yeah. Well, one, of my, one of my scariest flights, um, and this actually links in what I, with what I was saying earlier, um, uh, uh, when I got kicked out of uh, Las Vegas uh, because I couldn't stay in the hotel, uh, any of the hotels, I had to, I had to leave Las Vegas. Um, so the flight was actually, so I'd flown down from Seattle down to um, uh, LA uh, uh, the day before. Um, and that was uh, supposed to be an eight hour flight, but I did a stop halfway to look at an aviation museum. And I ended up staying there for quite a long time this aviation museum, just because I had such a good time there. And it was good to have a little break. Um, and uh, you know, I was there for about six hours or so. So in the end, I only landed in LA around three or three a.m. Or two, I mean, it was one three a.m. It was two two a.m. Uh, I only got sleep around three a.m. Um, but the thing was, I had uh, media commitments at seven a.m. at a different airport. Um, so I had to get up at six a.m., get to the airport, flew the short hop um, to just from just the outskirts of LA, uh, and did these media commitments. Um, and, I, and uh, you know, I was, I was still quite buzzing because I'd just woken up, done all the flight planning, things like that. Um, but uh, after the media commitment, it was about midday um, by this point. Uh, no, it wasn't about midday. It was about, it was about 9 a.m. by this point. And it started to heat up, uh, you know, the, the California heat, uh, California desert heat. Uh, I, I was, it, was, it was making me quite tired. Um, and I had uh, a two, uh, two and a half hour flight from that airport to um, uh, Las Vegas. And I remember I took off and uh, I put the autopilot on. Once I, once I you know, flew out of the area and the workload decreased, I put the autopilot on and I was just sitting there and I was starting to go dip my head and close my eyes. And I, and I, I realizing I was, I, was, I was falling asleep in my seat and I was slapping myself in the face, trying to stay awake. 
um, uh, and I, I had an energy drink, um, and uh, which I vowed not to do because, well, first of all, I hate energy drinks, but also it makes you pee, which is not what you do, want to do when you're in a toilet with no, uh, when a plane with no toilet. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, I, luckily, I managed to make it to Vegas uh, uh, just in time, um, and uh, uh, you know, get get to uh, get to the hotel just to be kicked out of uh, just to be kicked out of the airport uh, kicked out of the hotel and so i thought okay well i've got nowhere else to stay except for my next destination but the problem was my next destination was in montana um uh, and so that was another eight hour flight all the way up to montana uh, from las vegas um and so i thought okay uh if i just drink energy drinks uh, uh had these these uh bags which i could pee in um uh, sort of what uh diapers are made out of um uh, and uh, yeah, absorbs it all <laughs> and uh and that's and that's what i thought i'd do um and so i uh i took off um on this flight um absolutely absolutely exhausted i mean i, I knew i was exhausted i mean it was, it was so hot as well i mean it was 110 degrees um and i knew i was i knew i was uh quite scary because my the air traffic controller cleared me for takeoff and he wanted me to do a right turn out after departure and uh, and i think okay yeah right turn after departure i'll do that and, and i take off and i take off i just turn left out, out of departure just because i was so frazzled and tired and he was like uh that was supposed to be a a, a, a right turn uh you did a left turn i was like oh sorry 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 um uh, and i continued on the flight and uh uh by this point um you know it, i left las vegas around uh, uh 6 p.m bearing in mind it was an eight hour flight up there i'd only be getting up there up to um, montana around 2 a.m uh and i'd woken up uh sorry and i remember I'd, I'd gone to sleep the night before around 3 a.m woken up at 6 a.m so i was on about three hours of sleep and i was only going to get to my destination at 2 a.m so it's going to be about an 18 hour work day um uh, for this whole flight um for this whole day um and so I uh, uh, links in again to what I was talking about, how I didn't have any mountain training. Um, so remember, I, I told you I was saying that I uh, uh, was going to do some mountain training, but I never managed to pull it off. Well, Montana, as you know, it's surrounded by the Rockies and surrounded by all these huge, huge mountains. Right. And uh, as I, I was about an hour away from my destination, um, uh, so it was about 1 a.m. local time at this point, pitch black outside. Uh, starting to get a bit tired again the the energy drinks starting to wear off um and uh, uh, uh as i'm flying along i'm listening to music to try to stay awake um uh, while also listening to air traffic control of course um and uh i begin to notice i'm sitting there with the autopilot on pitch black outside i can't see the ground below me and i begin to notice actually that the airspeed is beginning to drop i'm thinking hmm, that's strange so i i go full throttle and the airspeed is dropping and dropping still um, and so, uh, uh, you know, instinctively, I, I turn off the autopilot and I take control of the aircraft. And I'm managing to have to pull back on the on the yoke in order to maintain my altitude, um, which was causing my airspeed to decrease. And uh, eventually, I was actually forced to put the nose down and put my aircraft into a descent in order to stop the aircraft from stalling, which would basically cause the aircraft to fall out the sky uncontrollably. Um, and uh, uh, one thing to bear in mind is that. It was what it was 1 a.m. over the uh, uh, Rocky Mountains. I was on three hours of sleep after already flying for 17 hours. Um, and uh, uh, I was flying at 14,000 feet, uh, which was above, the, which is at that altitude, you can get hypoxia. Um, and so I, had, I was breathing through an oxygen tube. Um, uh, and uh, uh, um, 
there I am dropping out the sky. Um, and I was flying at uh, 14,000 feet and the mountains below me were at 2,000 feet. Um, and 2,000 feet separation gives you, is, is the minimum safe altitude. It gives the minimum clearance you can have. You mean the mountains were at 12,000 feet and you had a right. two, yeah. Yes, yeah. And, and I just started to descend because the plane was starting to, uh, because the plane would have, would have stalled if I didn't. Uh, and I actually dropped about 2,000 feet in 30, in 30 seconds. So I dropped, in 30 seconds, I dropped down to the same altitude where there are mountains and it was pitch black outside. So I couldn't see the mountains or the ground below me. I just knew that I was where the tops of the mountains were. Um, and uh, uh, part of our uh, training here in the UK, pilot training, uh, you, get, you get towards a, a, a phrase, which is aviate, navigate, communicate. And so what that means is uh, you aviate, which means you, you fly the plane, you navigate, you, you, uh, uh, you work out where to go and you communicate, you talk to air traffic control. Um, and that's what you do if you're ever in a panic or something's not right. Um, uh, and so that's exactly what I did. So uh, here I was descending into the mountain, into the face of a mountain, which I knew I was about to hit any second now. And I thought, aviate, navigate, communicate. So I aviated. So I just turned around the complete opposite direction. I, had. I uh, navigated. I, uh, uh, well, sorry, well, I aviated. I turned around. I navigated. I flew the complete opposite direction I was, I was heading. And I communicated uh, and I told air traffic control what was going on and they actually uh, uh, gave me directions to get out of the area um, and uh, and I managed to make it to my destination an hour later. Um, and you're probably wondering, what was that? Why did I why did I drop uh, uh, to, out of the sky? Uh, essentially, what it was, was a, a, a something called a mountain wave, uh, which is what happens uh, is you have a, a mountain, essentially, imagine a mountain. And that mountain acts like a ramp for the wind. Um, and so the, the wind ramps up this mountain, um, but of course it has to come back down. And so it gets it, it drops down on the other side of the mountain. And I was flying through that wind that was dropping down on the downwind side of the mountain. So it was essentially pushing me down into the face of the mountain. Um, uh, and uh, and that's what, and that's, that was absolutely terrifying. Um, uh, and that's what it was. And I should, I should have known I, I, I should have thought that's what, that's what it was, but because I was so tired, because I was just, uh, uh, you know, so many things going on, I, I just thought, yeah, that's, the weather looks good. There's no, there's nothing. Um, and coming back to think of it, there was, you know, quite obvious signs of high, strong winds over the mountaintops, which are things that us pilots are taught to look out for. And I just never, never thought of that just because I was so tired. So, um, you know, I landed safely, but, uh, uh, you know, I learned two things that day, which was, you know, don't, don't, uh, fly for that long, uh, and, uh, don't make yourself tired and otherwise you make mistakes. And also don't fly over the Rocky mountains in the middle of the night. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any sense, um, Travis, how close you got to meeting the side of the mountain? Was it you're half a mile away or so, so in the end, I, uh, I look back on my track. Um, and because uh, it had, had a GPS uh, track of where I was and 3D track and I could see the terrain below me on this 3D track uh, so this was after I landed I looked at it and I was actually still about a few thousand feet above the ground maybe I think about 3,000 feet above the ground um, considering I considering I, I dropped I was dropping about 2,000 feet every 30 seconds I mean I was uh, uh, um, you know 45 seconds away from crashing into the side of this mountain basically if I hadn't turned around so yeah that's how that's how close it was <laughs> Wow, that's that's exciting. I'm sure the adrenaline was pumping. Yeah. Let me. Um, so, just out of curiosity, once you got on the right track and air traffic control had you on a safe course, what did it look like at twelve thousand feet in Mon Montana on a clear clear night? What did the heavens feel like, and what was that experience like? 
well i mean that that was that was nothing i mean i, I had no reference to the to the sky no reference to the to, to the to the ground because uh you know where i was it was so abandoned i mean there was a few dotted lights everywhere like um every 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 once in a while but really there was there was there was no no roads or anything uh in that area where i was flying um and it was overcast so i couldn't see the night sky so really it was uh if i looked out the window i couldn't see the difference between the sky and the ground so oh oh I mean, it, so, it was so, an over so you were in the in the partial or clouds of some sort yes, so you couldn't yes. see the heavens above no i couldn't i couldn't so and that's what made it even more scary was that yeah i didn't have it didn't even have the moonlight or the stars to 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 reference off of uh, and so that that was it really was flying blind so when you landed uh, that evening or morning did you take a day off or did you just sleep for a few hours and get up and head uh, on again yes so, so i um uh, and that's what part that's what uh, i i promise i do after that i was like oh i need to get back on my sleep i, I can't be tired for uh, anymore um and so i i you know, went to sleep around uh, 3 a.m. and I woke up around 6 p.m. the next day <laughs> and, uh, 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 you know, had dinner, which was the same as breakfast, and went back to sleep uh, a few hours later and slept until uh, 9 a.m. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, sp I spent a whole day asleep, basically, um, and uh, and then I spent another day um, looking around, having relaxing, and uh, and then the next day after that, I left. So I spent two days there um, to to catch up on some sleep and relax a bit and then I and then I continued on but uh uh leaving there I I, I flew over the Rocky Mountains in the day and uh, uh didn't encounter any of the same problems uh, and I could see where I was going the whole time <laughs> so um now you're on the kind of the return leg of the trip um how many more days did you have left and what were kind of the the exciting points and lessons learned on your way way home yeah, so so by that point I had uh, about a month left to go on the trip. Uh, uh, no, but uh, yeah, yeah, about about a month left to go on the trip. Uh, and uh, the things I'd learned really were um, uh, uh, don't rush. You know, if the rushing had caused problems. Um, uh, I I had actually um, had a, a scary fuel moment uh, uh, back in Russia. It was actually day three of the trip. Um, I, I was flying from Moscow to uh, a city called Yekaterinburg in Russia, um, which is uh, actually the third largest city in Russia. I'd never even heard of it before, before I was uh, applying for this around the whole flight. Um, but uh, it was an eight hour flight, uh, no longer than eight hour flight, it was an uh, eight, eight hour, 45 minute flight um, to um, Moscow to Yekaterinburg. And I, uh, as, I as I mentioned, I only had about 10 hour, uh, sorry, 10 days of experience flying this aircraft and getting used to this aircraft before I left for the Ramal flight. Um, and, uh, and this was on day three of the Ramal flight, this happened. So I was flying from Moscow to Yekaterinburg. And because it was quite a long flight, it was, my plane had an endurance, well, I thought an endurance of about 10 hours. Um, and uh, uh, the the flight itself was going to be about eight hours, 45 minutes. So I was pushing it to the end, uh, you know, near the edge of its range, really. Um, and uh, we're filling the plane up with fuel, the Russian fuelers are uh, filling the plane up with fuel. And what I didn't realize, because I'd only had about 10 days of experience with, with the plane, is that you actually have to fill the plane up. It's the same as a car. You fill, when you fill, the, you fill up the fuel tank, yeah, if you allow the fuel to settle a little bit, you can add a bit more fuel to the tank. Um, and uh, all the fuel tank calculations were considering an absolutely full fuel tank. And an absolutely fuel, full, full fuel tank, you can only get by uh, uh, release, stopping fuel, letting it settle down again, adding more fuel, letting it settle down again, adding more fuel, letting it settle down again. 
Um, and I didn't know this. So we filled up, filled up to the top and put the lids on and I, I, I put the capsule fuel tank on and not realizing that there was uh, an extra hour of endurance, uh, 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 an extra hour of fuel I could have fitted into the aircraft. Um, so uh, considering uh, it was an eight hour, 45 minutes flight, the plane only had an endurance of 10 hours um, and I'd locked and I'd uh, knocked an hour off that because I completely messed up uh, with the fuel. Um, I was cutting things really, really fine. Um, so you had 15 minutes of safety 15, fuel. Yes, exactly. Yes. And the, uh, the legal um, legal requirement is 45 minutes is, is a legal requirement, but that's still uh, nothing for Russia because the nearest alter, alternate airport from Yekaterinburg was a two hour flight away. Um, uh, and so uh, I take off for the run off, I take off on Moscow again, not knowing that my tanks aren't uh, uh, my fuel tanks aren't full to the brim because the fuel tanks actually read fuel, reads um, full. Um, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're not accurate at the fullest, they're only accurate at zero essentially. Um, that's the only time fuel tanks have to be legal to read accurately, <laughs> um, which is which I think is crazy. Um, and so they read full. Um, and as I take off, because it's uh, actually an uncontrolled airport in Moscow, I had to I had to circle for about forty five minutes in order to get my in order to get my clearance uh, uh, to to fly through Russia. And so after forty five minutes of holding and just flying, finally I continue on my way. And uh, uh, I still I realize okay I've, still, I've got ten hours of endurance um, uh, uh, and it's an eight hour forty five minute flight. Um, and actually, the, I also looked at the weather, and a, a tailwind was forecast. So really, I'll, I'll, I'll get there with more, uh, with more fuel than I uh, than I expect, with higher safety margin. Um, so I, I, I continuing on the route, and as I climb up my altitude, I notice I've got a bit of a headwind, and I'm thinking, hmm, this is strange. Um, I calculate it, and I realize I'm still going to make it there, uh, uh, just with enough uh, with, with enough fuel, um, uh, or with well with fuel and, and a good and a good buffer margin. Um, uh, but the headwind gets stronger and stronger and stronger. I'm thinking, hmm, this is this is uh, this is quite strange. It's quite tight. Uh, uh, I'm looking at a reference to the fuel tanks now because the fuel tanks are getting more and more accurate. I'm thinking, okay, I've got this much fuel, uh, and I and I have this headwind. Yeah, you know, something's not right. My my fuel calculations aren't right, Sam. Or there's not enough fuel in the tanks. Um, and uh, I did have an alternate I could have flown to. Um, I, I did have a an alternate halfway through, which I had plenty of fuel to get to. Uh, but the problem was. That it was a Russian Air Force base was my alternate, and flying a American registered aircraft with a British pilot with a massive British flag and European Union flag on the tail. That's not the sort of aircraft you want to land at a uh, a Russian military base. <laughs> and so I thought that's really the last thing I want to do. Um, so I'm continuing onwards, um, and uh, uh, luckily I start to gain a tailwind, um, and the tailwind actually becomes. A lot stronger than was originally forecasted, um, and so I land. Uh, 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 but my final request of well, for the air traffic control was that I request that I could uh, go uh, direct to the runway and make a left turn onto the runway because what was actually happening, uh, and I've got a, a video of it, um, is my right fuel tank was at this point completely bone dry. There was absolutely nothing in my right fuel tank at all, um, and my left fuel tank had about. Uh, uh, less than a gallon in there uh you know well, actually it, yeah it was it, was, uh, it had a what well, had one gallon in there really um uh and uh i la and so uh what that meant was uh one gallon is be below the usable level of uh, of the fuel tank which means uh, uh 
at certain attitudes that fuel won't actually reach the in the fuel uh, um, intake to go into the engine if you're if you're like turning at all. Um, and so I knew that uh, uh, because the uh, uh, so I got the fuel tank just around it. So it was the the left fuel the right fuel tank was dry and the left fuel tank had, had the one gallon in. And so I had to request a left left turn onto the onto the runway um, because my right fuel tank was uh, uh, um, my left side my uh, my right fuel tank had one gallon in it. And so if I turn right, uh, so if I turned uh, left, uh, that right fuel could supply that to that fuel, uh, to that intake all the time. Whereas if I turned right onto the runway, like they wanted me to originally, all that fuel that was in that tank would go to the other side of the other side of the fuel tank, but wouldn't, wouldn't get supplied into that uh, fuel intake pipe. Um, and I landed uh, uh, just in time and I get out and I look at the fuel tanks, my legs shaking. I'm like, oh my God, what just happened? Um, I get out and I look at the fuel tanks and the left fuel tank was, as I said, just completely bone dry. And I look at this, I've never seen a fuel tank like that before. I mean, it, it looked like uh, the, the fuel tank would just come straight out of the factory and put into the plane. And uh, it was the first time, uh, it was about to be filled up with fuel for the first time. Like it never had a drop of fuel in there in its life. Um, and the right fuel tank just had a few little puddles dashed around the uh, the bottom of the fuel tank. Um, and so that's, I've never flown a plane to that minimum fuel before. And yeah, I worked it out that I had 15 minutes of fuel left uh, when I landed, which was just about what I what I uh, uh, would have calculated. So all my calculations were correct and all that sort of thing. The only thing I messed up on was uh, not putting enough fuel uh, into the into the tank straight away. And uh, I realized that after that, um, that, that was the issue. And after that as well, I didn't go on any, uh, I didn't go on any flights longer than eight hours after that, just because I was, I was too scared. So that was another valuable lesson learned. Did you have any other close encounters like that? Um, though, so that that was the only close encounter I had with fuel. Um, I had a, uh, and as, as I mentioned, the close encounter I had with uh, uh, the the Rocky Mountains. Um, I actually had a uh, a close encounter uh, um, flying uh, into Seattle. Um, uh, not nothing to do with actually flying the aircraft. Nothing happened wrong in the flight. But this was um, uh, that same day where I was, I was telling you I had to divert into Canada and I had these political problems. Um, so I was flying from, as I said, Alaska to, uh, uh, you know, I was flying from Ketchikan, Alaska to Seattle. Um, and because it's only a domestic flight, you don't have to go through customs or anything. Um, even though you overfly Canada, you, you don't have to go through customs. Um, and so I was flying to a non-customs airport um, originally. And uh, uh, as I was looking at the uh, the weather and the uh, uh, as I was doing the flight planning for that day, I was looking at the weather, and I could see that uh, there was um, a headwind for that flight, uh, which basically means you know you you fly a lot slower, um, and the flight will take a lot longer than than you know, actually that it will take. But uh, you know what was originally going to be a, a four or five hour flight, um, I calculated it was going to be a, a six or seven hour flight, so that's still within well within my range. Um, and I thought, okay, it's going to be a longer day than it normally is, but uh, you know that's that it would have been, but I'll still make it there, no problem. Um, so I take off and I actually notice that the headwind is a lot less than originally forecasted. So I'm thinking, oh, it's gonna be great. I'm gonna get there, you know, within within six, within six or so hours. So you know, you knock an hour off uh, the expected flight time. Um, and I, I end up flying through the snowstorm. Um, and as I get out the other side of the snowstorm, the headwind suddenly increases rapidly. And in the end, I'm only doing about uh, uh, my 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 air, my speed along the ground originally goes from about 100 knots 
down to about 25 knots, which is about 30 miles per hour. Um, so the cars below me on the on the highways were going faster than I was flying through the air. Um, and so I was forced to, uh, uh, by this point, the airport uh, in Ketchikan had closed. And so I was forced to actually divert into Canada without doing any prior clearances, paperwork or anything. I just diverted and landed into Canada. Um, and so I landed in Canada around 6 p.m. And uh, in this uh, quite rural area in Canada, um, and I, I uh, fill the plane up with fuel and I call the customs and uh, the Canadian customs. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm talking to them and they say that they can't let me into the country because uh, of coronavirus. And they even I remember they said to me, they said, oh, what you're doing is really irresponsible. Um, uh, it's, it's quite silly to be flying around the world during a global pandemic. And I thought, oh, yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. It won't, it won't happen again. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, but typical, typical Canadians, they, they, uh, they're so polite and they're so nice that they, they have to, they can't just say leave the country now. They have to like do a formal um, uh, uh, rejection uh, uh, from the country. Uh, so they have to you know, say, uh, like officially, the, uh, uh, so I have to wait for three hours on the ground to get my official, official clearance out of Canada. Um, and so I'm thinking, oh, now, okay, finally they, they, they let me leave out of the country. Um, uh, and so it's about, yeah, about 8.30 p.m. Uh, I, was, I was able to leave. Um, uh, and as, as I'm looking for places to, to land, I was now to land at an airport with customs. I didn't want to land at Seattle International Airport because it's quite expensive landing fees and you know, it's a big airport. And I actually find um, uh, Everett uh, or Bo the Boeing Field, which is the Boeing factory um, in Seattle. Um, and they have 24-hour customs there. Um, and I think they're great. And it's about 8.30, 8.30 p.m. at this point. I noticed that the, um, uh, as I'm looking at the documentations, I see that their office is open until 9 p.m. So I thought, okay, you know, because you have to call ahead um, in order to get your clearance, in order, to, in order for them to you know, say uh, yes. And so I, I give them a call and I get no response uh, over the phone call. I've called them maybe four or five times and I get no response over the, over the phone. So I think, oh no, this is not good. Um, you know, what I'm gonna, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take off and I'm gonna arrive and, and see what happens. Um, and so I get there. I land in Seattle about midnight at this point, um, and I, uh, I, I ask air travel control where to taxi to to get to the customs. They tell me where to go, and I and I see the customs building, but all the lights are off. It's pitch black, and um, uh, and there's no planes parked outside. But I, I see a building connected to it with all the lights on and loads of planes parked outside. I think. Oh, that looks like the right place to park. So I'll just park right there next to it. And as I get out of the plane, um, I'm getting all my stuff out. A police car comes around, uh, all its lights on. And this guy jumps out of his car and he's got his hand on his gun. And he's saying, you're going to go to jail tonight. I'm going to take your license away. Uh, uh, you need to go over here right now. And he, ma he makes me taxi the plane all the way to this to actual customs area. Um, and he gets out and he, he's like, I need all your bags. I need all this. Um, and he checks all my bags, looks at everything. And... In the end, he realizes that I, I'm not a Canadian drug smuggler and he becomes the nicest guy. He's like, oh man, I'm sorry about that. Uh, it's just, that's just what we've got to do to make sure you got to park over here next time. And uh, said, where, he said, where are you saying? Oh, I'm saying that this motel down the road. He's like, oh, really? There's a really nice pizza place down the road. I recommend you you, you go over there. <laughs> so in the end, he became a really nice guy. But, uh, you know, half an hour before that, he was he was holding his gun, threatening to, to take my license away and take me to jail. <laughs> so that was definitely a scary moment. <laughs> Did you have any other moments where um, you have, you've had a lot of kindness that people have offered you. Um, was there any moments where you ran into just um, a dark person who was trying to take advantage or 
trying to take something from you or anything like that? No, I, I, I never, I never uh, encountered any sort of any, any issues with any people. Um, uh, I mean, you know, the, the worst issue I had was 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 that really with with someone, and that was sort of my fault. Um, uh, really, my 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 biggest worry of the round of flight was was through Russia, and I was I was warned about flying through Russia, saying, "Oh, you know, so you got to lock everything all the time. You got to be really careful of the people, all that sort of stuff." Um, and I, I couldn't believe how 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 wrong that was i mean every single place i went to there they were so nice they were, they were like hey uh, great to meet you and they got so they gave me loads of gifts they gave me uh actually i came into russia with nothing and i actually left vodka with uh, left russia with two uh two massive bottles of vodka which was just gifted to me <laughs> um and um uh, uh the people there were just absolutely amazing some of the some of the nicest people i've ever met in from russia um and uh yeah they, they kept wanting to uh, uh you know get get drunk with me uh, so in russia they have this thing where they flick their neck like this and that's basically means they want to they want to get drunk um and uh and it's like uh, no нет, 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 I, i'm flying tomorrow <laughs> but uh yes yeah, so, uh so i i really I, I never had any any bad moments with anyone or uh any any moments felt threatened or, or anything like that i mean i was i was very very lucky Oh, that's nice to hear. I mean, it's nice to hear the stories of all these generous people yeah, that absolutely. helped you along the way. <clears throat> so yeah, when yeah. you when you got back to when you got home, what was what was the re reception like? And what did that? What did that feel like? Oh, it was it was it was great. Um, uh, I mean, it was it was a massive relief uh, to, to, to arrive, but uh, I landed there. And uh, there was a huge, huge crowd at the airport uh, waiting for me. Um, uh, I, my friends, family, uh, people who I'd never met before showed up as well. People who just, just following my story were there. And uh, yeah, I met them all and it was just absolutely amazing. Um, uh, just to see the support after, after doing all that and having all these people there, they, they give me gifts and uh, 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 all these sorts of things. Um, it was just, just such a, such a reward. And actually, as I, as I came back into British airspace, my my uh, uh, mates who fly as well, they all we all formated, we all went flew in formation to, down to to land at my uh, my destination airport, and uh, yeah, it's it was great. And I remember, you know, I landed back, uh, said hello to everyone, and left, and actually had a uh, uh, went to a restaurant with my family when I got back, and I was I was falling asleep in my in, in my as I was eating my food at the restaurant with my family just because I was I was that exhausted. But yeah, it was it was a, such a relief to 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 make it back, um, and. Uh, uh, the next uh, uh, couple of days after I was uh, landed back, I, I was back in the air, and uh, me and my girlfriend flew down uh, down on holiday uh, down to uh, just the south of the UK for a little holiday. So that was a, that was a good reward as well. But uh, yeah, back, the plane was still full of stuff, full of uh, survival equipment, and we both went flying down to uh, down for a little holiday. <laughs> so you completed this this four year journey. How yeah. did your life change, Travis? Um, did you what kind of recognition did you get uh, obviously the the guinness book of world records is the, the youngest around the solo around the world flight um did the media start coming after you for interviews and what how did the public interest change and in what you'd been yeah. doing yeah well I, I did i had a lot of uh, uh your media um uh, that that came on board um uh I mean, I a lot of the uh, you know, the BBC, we have Sky News here as well, and I did a, quite a lot of. Uh, I mean, it was it was challenging because they did a lot. They want to do a lot of breakfast shows, and you know, breakfast is 
when you know, huge amounts of people watch um uh, and they and so i mean it was a privilege because they're putting me on the main shows um uh, but um uh i the breakfast shows i had to get up at you know 6 a.m every day where all i wanted to do was sleep because i was still still jet lagged and still absolutely uh uh, uh, uh obliterated with tiredness from from this trip so i had to do you know, quite a few days i had to wake up early to uh uh, to do these uh, 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 things, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was yeah. I, I I'm not complaining. It was great to uh, to do that, and uh, yeah, real privilege as well. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, as well as that, the whole aviation community in the UK. I I, I land at airports, um, and uh, they're like, "Oh, you're Travis Ludlow. You you flew around the world. Great to meet you, and you're yeah, amazing what you did." Um, and funnily enough, actually, I was I was actually having dinner with some of my mates at a restaurant yesterday, um, and uh, the person next next to uh, sitting next to me just comes and was like. Excuse me, are you are you traveling so low? Did you did you fly around the world? So yeah, it was uh, uh, yeah. I guess I get a little bit more recognition now, but uh, yeah, it was um, uh, it was amazing, um, amazing uh, recognition I got, and I get a lot more support. Um, uh, I'm getting a lot of support, I should say, um, even now. Um, but I think it changed me as well. It made me it made me a better person. It made me a lot more sensible. I learned a lot about myself, and uh, um, it made me just appreciate the world a lot more. And uh, yeah, appreciate uh, uh, people. I'm a lot more trusting of the world now, whereas I used to think the world was a lot more hostile than it actually is. Now, you, you had some experiences in, in Russia that um, sounded like they were actually nice ex, uh, experiences and the people were great. So that's, you know, that's great to hear. I know when we were talking a, a couple of weeks ago, just touching base um, on a late on a Saturday afternoon, you were studying for the highest level of um, commercial licensing in the UK. Um, you know, how much, how much t time does that take? So that that's, means you can fly commercial jets um, yes. once you get through the process? Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, it uh, uh, essentially allows me to fly you know, any, any, any aircraft and, and get paid for it, but uh, it's really difficult. Um, uh, over there in the United States, um, uh, the FAA has uh, uh, they say they have the same sort of license, but it's a lot easier to get because it's all based on experience. Whereas, so you have to have fifteen hundred flying hours and all these sort of things. Whereas in the UK uh, and in Europe, um, you can get your license a lot earlier, with a lot less flying, but the process is a lot harder. And I think I think that the, the America does it better um, because you get a lot of experience. But we have to do these thirteen exams, um, of which each are. Uh, so it's, the shortest ones are an hour, the longest ones are two and a half hours, um, uh, and you have to do 13, uh, 13 of them. Uh, and I think there's only there's only two hour long tests, and the, all the rest are are two two and some are two and a half hours. Um, so really is is a lot of um, uh, work uh, uh, to get these right in there, uh, all sorts of things. So we got to yeah, I can show you actually. We got um, using things like this uh, uh, Jepson Airway manual, looking at uh maps and charts and all sorts of things um uh which just re really difficult things uh, uh and things that aren't even used today just outdated um uh, but these things you have to do for your license so uh but it's gonna be a reward to get it done and uh, it needs to be done and uh, uh everyone's everyone's on the struggle uh uh all, all pilots who are going from a commercial in, in europe are going through the struggle and uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be good to get them done how many how many of the 13 exams have you made it through right now i've only i've only done uh so i've done uh, 
uh, I've only done three uh, at the moment uh, of 13. Um, and the reason for that is because I uh, originally was supposed to do six, but I caught COVID um, halfway through that exam week, which meant that I couldn't uh, sit the other three exams of that, that week. Um, so I've got uh, next week, I've got another, um, the other uh, seven coming up. And then uh, a couple of weeks after that, I'm, I'm going to do uh, um, uh, two more, uh, sorry, three more of what I, what I missed out uh, on back in. Uh, so you've got uh, 10 more exams in the next two or three weeks before you head to the U.S. That's right. Yes. Uh, so I write my last exam on the 19th of uh, August and my flight out to the U.S. is on the 20th of August. <laughs> wow. That's, that's fantastic. Um, yeah. So we've, we've kind of, um, brought our guest up to speed on your your very amazing journey so far, but you're you're just getting warmed up. So you're heading to Florida, where you're going to start um, Avionics Engineering College. You want to um, tell us where you're going and what that program's about? Yes. Yeah, so so I'm going to Ember Riddle uh, Aeronautical uh, Aeronautical uh, sorry Aerospace University. University, um, and uh, they're in Daytona Beach in Florida, um, and I'm looking to actually study electrical engineering while I'm over there, um, but I'm hoping to do a bit of electrical engineering and, uh, and some uh, uh, aerospace engineering as well, um, and uh, it's just a great, amazing university. I, uh, I was actually in New York recently doing a TED Talk, as you know, um, uh, and uh, while I was there, one of the, uh, uh, I was looking for a university, and one of their um, uh, advisors or or or, or uh, you know their recruiters. I wouldn't say recruiters, but uh, yeah, one of their faculty came out uh, to see me and speak to me about the university, and I was I was hooked. I had to fly down to Florida, and I checked it out, and I was I just absolutely loved it. Um, and uh, that's how I decided I want to go there. Um, and my dream is actually about electric aviation. And uh, my dream to while I'm there is to start a club um, uh, and start a group because over 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 in uh, a lot of universities in this, in in the states is that. Your clubs are a lot bigger than they get here. I mean, the universities support them and things like that. Whereas in the UK, I mean, you want to start a club, they're like, shut, shut up. Yeah, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot more. Uh, there's a, I feel like there's a lot more opportunity over there. Um, and so my goal is to start a club where we uh, uh, get some sort of aircraft. Uh, we take out the engine in it and we put an electric motor and batteries in it. And we uh, could basically convert this uh, existing aircraft to uh, run on battery power um and that's my that's my dream to, and my goal while i'm there and my dream actually one day is to uh, fly around the world in a fully electric aircraft as well break the world record of the first person to do that uh, so that's my dream someday in the future uh you're probably not in that aircraft but you know, in, in some sort of aircraft well that's that's um that's awesome and i'm sure you'll make that happen and i'm, I'm sure some of those technologies will come to to life um before 10 years when we were at the TED Talk, you talked about climate change and aviation sustainability. And if I remember correctly, you said the aviation industry is the biggest polluter. They put out a billion tons of uh, carbon dioxide a year. And one of your passions was to find um, better ways for sustainable aviation, including electric aircraft. Do you want to talk a little bit about yeah, I mean, I, I, for me, I mean, uh, aviation. I love, I love aviation. I, I, it's absolutely amazing. But 
the damage that it's doing is is not good. Um, but uh, I, I'm not saying I'm not saying that uh, we should stop flying. Suddenly we should we should you know, quit aviation. We should uh, stop flying altogether. I'm I'm saying that we should we need much more of a push towards the sustainability of aviation. Um, and so so uh, you know, at the moment all, all aircraft run on fossil fuels, um, and uh, it's gonna it's it's gonna going that way and it has to keep going that way um, until we we find solutions to it um, and there are multiple solutions there's batteries there's hydrogen um, and uh, uh, there's ups and downs of both so for example uh, hydrogen uh, is great because I mean it's, it's it's very similar to combustion except the only the only uh, output of it is heat and uh, water um, that's the only that's that's what comes out the exhaust essentially um, and um, uh, uh, you don't have to, you don't have to worry anything about uh, about uh, any pollution apart from apart from that. But the problem with it is that uh, first of all, hydrogen is quite difficult to get um, uh, the production of it, and also it's extremely polluting the production of hydrogen. So you have uh, two ways of producing hydrogen, which is um, uh, essentially the eco-friendly way and the the dirty way. Um, and so the eco-friendly way uh, uh, is uh, uh, it's what's, what's good about it is that it doesn't produce any uh, any carbon dioxide or anything as part of its um, uh, uh, you know formation of it, but it re re uh, requires huge amounts of electricity in order to make tiny bits of hydrogen. Um, and as well as that, you can only make small amounts of hydrogen, and so it's extremely expensive to make hydrogen this way. And so it's just not viable to supply uh, an entire aviation uh, sector uh, through uh, hydrogen, uh, green hydrogen. And the only other way of um, producing hydrogen, uh, which is how most of the world's hydrogen is produced, is uh, uh, a way of uh, um, actually splitting, uh, 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 you know, creating creating hydrogen out of out of gas. And the uh, main, uh, uh, the, well, the primary side uh, uh the primary deficit of the guess of this the, the primary problem is that you don't have to use a lot of electricity you don't have to do, do all these things but it just pumps out co2 that's that's the uh, the main uh uh output of this thing uh, or secondary uh, output and so that's just a huge problem um and uh batteries you, th you think batteries are good except batteries they uh right now the technology just isn't there they could only uh um they just do not have the operational range or capacity to even be even close to um, uh, uh, that of conventional uh, fuels. Um, and as well as that, I mean, they, uh, they're extremely heavy um, as well. For example, I was uh, actually flew an electric aircraft back in uh, uh, back last year when I came back from the other flight. And it was, uh, um, it's actually the world's first certified electric aircraft. It's called a Pipistrel. Um, but the problem is that they, so Pipistrel sells two models. They sell a uh, conventionally powered one, a, a, a fuel powered one, and a electric version. And I think the fuel the fuel powered one can fly for something like three hours, and the electric one can only fly for forty five minutes. Um, and as well as that, the electric one weighs a lot more, has a lot of cooling required, um, whereas the the petrol one can just fly for much further, much longer, and a lot more viable so there's a long way to go um, but we need to keep pushing uh, otherwise yeah we're we're, uh, we're gonna cause irreversible damage to our planet and cause huge huge issues for the future and uh, for future generations and it it might it probably won't affect me but it will probably start to affect my kids and and, and uh, my grandkids so it's really something that needs to be uh, sorted out 
Well, I mean, as you mentioned uh, at the TED talk that governments and politicians talk about carbon neutral and um, carbon sequestration and carbon credits and that these were basically marketing kind of gimmicks to appease the people. What we really need to talk about is carbon, carbon free and exactly. true sustainability. And aviation is always going to be a part of what humans do and that there needs to be disruptive, truly innovation solutions. And we know that governments are not going to do it. So it's going to be, you know, industry and it's going to take innovators and visionaries like yourself uh, to make that happen. Um, you know, when at the TED talk, you uh, referenced a uh, Socrates quote circa 450 BC that uh, he said, man must rise above the earth to the top of the atmosphere and beyond for only thus will he fully understand the world in which he lives. After flying around the world and, and thinking about aviation sustainability, and there, there's people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Rich, Richard Branson that are working hard on space travel. Um, Socrates was obviously a dreamer to, um, at four, four, 450 BC, thinking about going into the heavens. But, yep. you know, how does that touch you? And, and how do you think about all of that? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I uh, well, that's the reason why I, I quoted Socrates is, is because, uh, I mean, that's, that's really what got me inspired into this sustainable aviation. Um, I mean, I, I had, uh, uh, you know, I, I, uh, flying around the world, I'd seen the sheer size and the beauty of the world. And, uh, uh, and uh, you know, once I'd flown up above, you know, flown, flown around the world and I'd seen it, only then did I realize, you know, what needs to be done and, and, that, and the damage that uh, that that's, uh, that well, what what aviation damage could it could do to this planet, and so that's really what inspired me. Um, and uh, uh, you know, I think we need we need the 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 big powerful people like like Elon Musk and all these people to to you know start and uh, and support this support this goal and and make this goal a, a reality. And um, uh, you know, it's it's it really is the future. Um, uh, what well, has to be, otherwise you know, there won't be there won't be anything left in in uh, uh, years to years to come. Um, and so yeah, it's really really it's it's a, a vital that we make this possible and we and we change the course of uh, of aviation. Well, I'm sure you'll have a hand in making it happen. Um, so you've given us your your ten year goals. Um, do you ever have a, a dream of going to space? Absolutely. Um, I think space is uh, definitely something I'd love to do. Um, I, you know, I, I find it fascinating. And uh, I think, I think uh, it, it's, it's great that we're exploring out to, to other planets as well and exploring, uh, exploring out into space. I think, I mean, I was, I was, I watched the um, set a timer recently for uh, when they were releasing the new satellite, the new um, te uh, telescope uh, images, uh, um I, I set a timer to watch that live as they released uh so just because i was that fascinated by it so but yeah space space travel is uh is just is absolutely something i uh i'm, I'm very interested in and uh yeah i'd love to go to space one day so what, one last 
question in closing. Um, you spent a lot of time training, taking tests to get the next level of licensing. Yeah. Um, spend a lot of time flying. I, I noticed that you're also a um, tri triathlete, a kickboxer, and a uh, wakeboarder. Yeah. How do you find balance to do all these these things, Travis? I mean, you're a, you're a busy dude, and you've got a lot <laughs> going on. So it's, it sounds like you spend some time taking care of yourself, yeah, physically well, as well. That's how that's how I relax. I mean, I uh, uh, is 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 by is by doing fun things like that. Uh, um, I think that's it's it's important to to you know you work hard at things and you have to uh, uh relax uh, well you, if you work hard at things and do the and by uh, if you work hard at things you love then really that's that's the your relaxation i think and so that's part of what keeps me going um and uh, uh obviously there's some things i have to sacrifice you have to uh, uh, things like um i haven't done a triathlon in quite a while but i the kickboxing i had to stop doing quite a bit of kickboxing just to allow more time to prepare for the around the world flight um uh, things like that but i uh yeah I, I keep things in in balance all the time as well at least i like to um but it's definitely been a challenge uh but part of with during these uh, exams to get my commercial uh that's definitely been a challenge um but hopefully tomorrow i'll uh, i'll go wakeboarding again hit the lakes uh, uh it's me 100 degrees tomorrow so i'll uh, have a good time down in the water <laughs> and uh yeah uh, uh that's it really just just staying keep keep working hard at things you love and uh, and that's what keeps me going well, I think those are two great lessons for all of our, our listeners. Um, do the things you love and, um, you know, play hard, work hard. I, I did have one other thought that just came into mind. You know, in quantum physics, they talk about the unified field as you spent hours up um, flying around the earth. Um, have you ever felt like there's some higher energy, some higher consciousness and have you connected with that and if so what did it feel like i i do believe that there is something um you know, as i said i was so lucky on my runoff i mean it was it was a miracle uh and uh, uh i myself I'm, I'm i'm not religious or anything but i i believe that there is something out there there's something uh that's that's watching that watched over me on my runoff flight and, and continues to watch out on, on all of us uh, and i think that uh uh i was i some the the miracles that that came about i mean the things like the uh like bad weather ahead of me and uh, and just I, if I, I just stay on my straight line there's just gaps in the weather and these these are sort of things that just happen during the whole flight and uh, yeah things like not getting in trouble where so i could have easily been arrested on that day or i easily could have crashed into that mountain if this, this happened or, or this or this but really i i think there is something out there and uh, and you know something has my back <laughs> so um um you're, you're heading off to engineering school here in August. Um, and I know you've been um, trying to raise some money to help pay for that and everything else that you've gotten in your um, expenses with traveling around the world. Um, you have a, a GoFundMe account. Um, yes. If someone wanted to make a, a contribution, how could they do that? Yeah, so um, uh, on my GoFundMe account, so if you, if you search up uh, my name, which is Travis Ludlow, um, you'll see uh, 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 on GoFundMe, um, you'll see my uh, GoFundMe page and there you can donate uh, just via that link um, and any donations, you know, big or small, just greatly appreciated. Um, and, uh, you know, I know, I know times are tough for everyone uh, still because of uh, the 
impacts of the the global pandemic and things like that um and so yeah any any appreciate any help would just be absolutely appreciated and uh it's uh it's helped me out it helped me out my runoff flights you guys helped me out my runoff flights and uh, uh i asked for some more help for uh, uh for my future and so again thank you all so much and uh and uh you know any help will be hugely supported hugely appreciated i should say <laughs> okay travis well Thank you so much for sharing your journey and, and sharing your time. I look forward to having uh, follow-up um, discussions as you progress along the way. Um, you know, this, this is really exciting. You've done a lot of great things, and I, I think you deserve a lot of credit. But the real exciting things are yet to come and how you help um, create a new sustainable aviation industry. So thanks for everything. This is the Ampex podcast, and I am Charles Clausen. I hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks for joining us on the Ampex podcast. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure not to miss future episodes, and please rate the show wherever you get your podcast. Thanks to our awesome production team, Lindsay Soderberg, social and digital marketing, Taylor Higgins, video production, and Seth Nielsen, marketing. See you next time.